you are able, please rise as we read God's Word this morning from Matthew chapter 6 and also from Psalm 73, a few selected verses from there. Hear the reading of God's Word from Matthew 6, verse 13. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. And then over to Psalm 73. Truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled and my steps had nearly slipped. For I was envious of the arrogance when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. And over to 13. All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. For all the day long I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. If I had said I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task. Until I went into the sanctuary of God. Then I discerned their end. Truly you set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment. Swept away utterly by terrors. Like a dream when one awakes. O Lord, when you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. When my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in my heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast toward you. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel. And afterward, you will receive me to glory. Whom I Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire beside you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. This is the word of God. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Lord, you've said your word will stand firm and true forever. Uphold that promise now. Carry your word to those gathered here today. Mold and shape them. Make them more like Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. There's a show that I enjoy watching every now and then. The show is called Alone. Maybe you have seen it. It's a reality show where individuals are are placed in remote wilderness alone, right? They're given a camera and they're to direct, they're they're to document, I should say, their time in the wilderness And they're left with really no food, no water. They have a backpack, and that's about all they can take with them. With some essentials that they they need, maybe like an axe or a saw or or something like that, to at least help them. There's no shelter. They're they're to exist off the land. They are to to, to find their existence and their sustenance and their safety and their shelter all off the land. The show, then, is the last one standing out of, I don't know, 12 or 13 people. The one that can make it the longest alone wins a prize. I don't know if it's $100,000 or a million dollars or whatever. It's a pretty good chunk of change. that They win if you can last the longest in the Alaskan winter or some other wilderness area. Perhaps I enjoy it because the people that are on the show are usually some kind of professional you know, guides, they're hunting guides, they're, they're professional dog mushers. They're these kind of folks. We, we know these kind of people, right? It's not Ryan Arkema that's going to go out in the wilderness alone. It's not going to happen. But those kind of people like that kind of thing. But one of the things that I, that I like is that they, they are very creative in how they go about surviving. But if you watch the show, it's often that they're able to, to devise and create very simple tools. And one of those simple tools is often a small trap. 
to trap small animals like rabbits or squirrels or mink or something like this. And usually that, that trap is just like a stick with a, like almost like a fishing line tied in a circle that has some type of trip mechanism so that when a rabbit is going along, he gets his foot caught in this loop and the loop tightens and it snares the rabbit. It's a simple yet very effective trap. The trap then is placed in a strategic location, especially in the wintertime. You can see where the rabbits have gone because you can see their footprints, right? You can see where the squirrels have gone. So a trapper with any kind of smarts says, okay, I'm going to put this little thing on one of the paths that they go along in their daily walks. Well, over a period of time, the trapper will check his traps, and there are times when there's a rabbit. And the thing about these traps is that it doesn't do the job right away. It just traps their foot. So the trapper has to come along and finish the job, right? The trap has been sprung, and then the trapper comes along and finishes the task. However, there are times when there isn't prey there, but there are many times that there are. The prey is captured, snagged by the trapper's trap. Or as the psalmist says in multiple, multiple places, trapped in the fowler's net. A fowler then is a similar kind of thing. A fowler is someone who hunts or raises birds. And he traps these birds with his net. And the psalmist uses the fowler's net imagery in the same sense as I'm using the trapper's trap. That the enemy throws these traps, he throws these nets. And, and temptation then is that very thing when we're trapped in there and we're, we're succumbed to the trapper's traps. As we walk along our daily paths, the enemy knows what he's doing, just as the trapper knows what he's doing as well, right? He sees the paths that we go by every day because we leave footprints behind us. And he knows where to set the trap. He knows how to set the trap. And oftentimes it's not some big, ugly, nasty trap, but it's something that we can hardly see, like a fishing line, almost invisible. And we walk along and it snares our legs. As we walk along our paths, we encounter the trap of temptation and sin, don't we? And there are many times, perhaps even this day, or I should say even this day, when we are caught in the trapper's trap or the fowler's net. We know what it feels like to have the net around us, don't we? We know what it feels like to have that twine around our ankle, around our leg, It's a desperate place, isn't it? It's a desperate place. A terrifying place. So understanding the reality of this place, it's also essential to understand the next part of the Lord's Prayer. Lead us not into temptation. Last week we talked about sin. We talked about the devastation of sin in our lives. We also talked about how the Lord forgives us of this sin. And what a glorious reality forgiveness and grace is. What a glorious reality we now live in because of that forgiveness. That the fact that we were caught in the trap and Jesus removes the trap and sets us free. But we also understand the desperate nature of that, right? The the desperate reality of, oh no, I'm caught again. But then Jesus comes again and forgives us again. It seems essential to me to understand then this very emotion, this very reality, that we're always facing traps. 
temptations. We're always facing the reality that we could be caught even now in the fowler's net or the trapper's line. But it's also essential to understand that we are freed from the death sentence of the trapper. Charles Spurgeon writes these words about temptation and about this section of the Lord's Prayer. He says this, Fully to understand our text, this Matthew chapter 6, lead us not on temptation is the text he's talking about. Fully to understand our text, a man should have had sharp brushes in the wars and have done battle against the enemy within his soul for many a day. He who has escaped by the skin of his teeth offers this prayer with an emphasis of meaning. The man who has felt the fowler's net about him, the man who has been seized by the adversary and almost destroyed, he prays with awful eagerness, lead us not into temptation. What a wonderful word. It's the person that understands the desperate nature of the trapper's trap or the fowler's net, understands now, lead us not into temptation. I never want to be caught in that trap again. Lead me not into temptation. The prayer then is a prayer by the one who desperately understands, understands well the destruction of sin and the wonder of grace and recognizes that she never wants to be there again. And so she prays, lead me not into temptation and deliver me from evil because I never want to go back. And now we begin to see how the Lord's Prayer builds upon itself, as I've been saying. Forgive my sins. And I don't want to be back there again. Lead me not into temptation. Friends, this morning I wonder, do we understand what it means, as Spurgeon says, to be seized by the adversary? To be almost destroyed by the adversary, the trapper. I can say with confidence that on some level, each and every one of us knows the scars around our legs, and there's more than one imprint of the line around our ankle, isn't there? There are multiple. We know too well the the fumbling around with the net as we're caught. Therefore, will you join me this morning to pray with eagerness? Lead us not into temptation. Deliver us from evil. This morning and every morning, may we then turn to the Word of God where we find strength to turn from this temptation. Where we find hope as we walk along our daily paths, knowing all too well there are many and multiple traps along the way. It's the Word of the Lord we're able to find strength as we make our way. So I ask you to turn, if you have not already, into Psalm 73, where we're going to be looking at a few things. And specifically, I want to turn to Psalm 26 as we start out this morning. It says, My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. There's one thing that strikes me about this verse as we look at it, and as we look at Matthew 6.13 together this morning. When we pray, lead us not into temptation, what are we actually asking? What are we actually asking? Are we actually asking that we would not have temptation? Yes. Yes, we're actually asking that very thing. Lead us not into temptation because we don't want to be there again. We are asking, please, Lord, guide us around our paths. Guide us around the traps. This is the prayer. 
So just after we've been forgiven from our sins and we've confessed our sins and been forgiven, we're saying, lead us not into temptation and along that path. However, we still have the bruise from the last time we were caught. We still have the scratches from the nets around our fingers. And so without a doubt, we plead with the Lord, don't we? To lead us around those traps. But you know your life. I know my life. The psalmist knows his life. And verse 26 then says, my flesh and my heart may fail. The word may is not used in the sense that we may think of it. It's not used in the sense that there's a possibility that they will fail. He's actually fully acknowledging that they have failed. They are failing and they will fail again. So the truth lies in the fact that when we pray this prayer, lead us not into temptation, we're acknowledging that we understand that temptation will occur again. So what do we do? What do we do when temptation comes? What do we do when my heart fails again? What do we do when my flesh fails again? Psalmist says, God is my strength. God is my portion forever. And so can we just take a, a deep breath right there and consider that, that God is my strength. God is my portion. Ponder that with me. Ponder that statement that the Lord is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. And then add to that verse 25, if you're still looking in your Bibles, there is nothing on earth, there's nothing on earth that I desire more than you. There's nothing on earth that I desire more than the Lord. Of all the things that have ensnared me, of all the things that caused me to be trapped, recognizing forgiveness of grace and the love of our Father, there's nothing more, there's nothing better, there's nothing greater He is my portion forever. It's vital to understand that word portion before we move much further. That's not a word that we use very often in our day and age, is it? If I were to say, this is my portion, maybe we're talking about a piece of meat or something like that as we eat our dinner, right? This is the portion that you receive. But it's vital that we understand the context of portion as we understand the, the, the context of Psalm 73. So, When the original audience heard this or sings this, they have a a unique perspective on the word portion. And if you were to have another, if you have other uh, translations other than ESV, it may even give you a hint of what that is. It's also translated as inheritance. Okay, that helps us a little bit. So when the original audience hears portion or inheritance, what are they thinking? Are they thinking the same types of inheritance that you and I are thinking? Yeah, sort of, kind of. Certainly inheritance is inheritance. And then they, when, when their father or their grandfather or mother pass away, that they will receive something from their estate. It's the same kind of thing. But to them, it's even more grand, more, more wonderful, more poignant, more powerful to them. You see, because in, in their mind, in the original context, portion means something specific. Inheritance means something specific. To them, inheritance and portion means the holy land. An actual portion of the Holy Land. If you remember 12 tribes, right, were promised a Holy Land. And each of the tribes, other than Levi, because they were the priestly line, so 11 chunks of land, 
of the Holy Land was set out as an inheritance for each of the generations of the tribes. So when they think of it, right, they are actually thinking of boundaries on earth. That this land will be their safety, their security, their hope, their insurance policy. So they're thinking, my portion, my inheritance is the holy land that's been established for generations upon generations that I would have something to lean back onto. I will be able to farm this land. I'll be able to support my family. And then we read verse 25. There's nothing on earth that I desire more than you. You are my strength. Verse 26. You are my portion. There's nothing on earth I desire more than you. The psalmist is saying it doesn't matter what the boundaries of the Holy Land is or are. It doesn't matter that I have a big farm or a small farm. It doesn't matter that I have something to fall back onto for generations upon generations. What matters to me is you, God. There's nothing on earth that I desire more than you. Not the boundary, not the inheritance, not the portion. You see, because it's the Lord that provides those things. It's the Lord that provides His strength, His security, His hope, His future. He is my inheritance. He is my strength. He is my desire. He is my portion. And I'm humbled. I'm humbled by the piercing conviction that these words drive into my heart. For me, it's, it's, it's far too often, even having been forgiven, my strength is, is not often in the Lord. My portion is not in Him, but in myself, or money, or power, or control. My portion is in my doctrine, or my theology. My portion is in my politics, or my convictions. These are the things that give my heart courage and strength. These are the things that I rely on, right? This is how, these are the things that guide my heart and my life and the decisions that I make. The things that I fall back onto. These are the things that I love. These are the things that we place our hope and strength in. These are the things that we desire on earth more than our God. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors and lead us not into temptation. And so the hard question that I have for myself this week and that I have for all of us, what is it that we desire more than God? As we take a long, hard look at our hearts and our lives, where do we place our trust? Where do we place our security? Our doctrine, our theology, politics, good things. Good things. But is that what drives us? Is that what shapes how we think? Is that what shapes our lives? All of these things, is, is this what we truly love? What do we desire? What do I desire more than God? Where is my strength? Where is my inheritance? Where is the Lord greater? And the Lord is our portion. He becomes our strength. He becomes the thing, the one that shapes our lives, our decisions. He is the one that gives us hope and security and strength. 
But there's another question that I have for us this morning, and the one that's going to drive the remainder of our time. If God is my portion and he is my strength, as the psalmist says, what does that strength look like? Because I'm not quite sure in my day-to-day activities that I really understand what that strength looks like for me as I wake up tomorrow morning and go to work or school. How do I know when I see that strength, feel that strength, understand that strength? What does that, what does that look like? So I'm going to ask you to turn back in your Bibles, back into Psalm 73, and look at the first three verses with me, if you could. I'm not going to read them all. I just want to enter into the text there with you this morning. Again, the writer of the psalm recognizes something that upon first reading may seem rather obvious, but as we begin to investigate it, the saying it's, it's rather significant. What he's doing is he's being honest with himself. He's being honest with the Lord. He's being honest with himself. He's being honest with the reader. He is honest about who God is and about who he is. What is it about God that he recognizes? He fully acknowledges and proclaims that God is good and that God is good to those with a pure heart. We can join him with the resounding affirmation of, of that very thing. We can, we can say amen to that Asaph, who was the writer of the psalm. But in the very next verse, the tone of the psalm shifts dramatically. Do, do, you, do you see that? The next two verses honestly confess that he is the one who is not of pure heart. He's saying, you are good to those of pure heart, but that's not me. His feet had nearly stumbled and his steps nearly slipped. He was on the edge of the abyss, staring into the trap, facing the trap, seeing it, his trap of envy and of greed. But more than that, it seems to me that he was being brutally honest about an even deeper heart issue than even that of envy or greed or more. It seems to me that the confession that he's making that he doesn't love God the way he should. His love for God is broken. His service to the Lord was hooked into the traps, trapper's snare. His love and service for the Lord were born out of what the Lord could do for him. When we enter into any prayer, there must be full honesty. Honesty about who God is and about who we are. There really is no compromise for that. What do I mean by that? And what does, I think, Asaph mean by that? If we're not honest with ourselves and honest with the Lord, we are communicating something, especially in times of confession. If we hold back from the Lord our honest confession and what our temptations are, we're reserving a little bit of strength for ourselves, aren't we? If we don't confess everything, not that we have to confess every single thing, I'm not saying that, but if we're not completely and utterly honest with the Lord about who we are and what our hearts are striving after, then we're reserving a bit of that strength for ourselves. We're not relying totally on the Lord's forgiveness because we say, well, you can have this portion of my heart, you can have this portion of my confession, but you can't have this because I can handle this part of it. I got this part. You can handle 99.9% of it, but this 0.01% is still mine. You can't have that. What we're saying is I still have some ability, some strength in myself to save me from the trapper's snare. 
It wasn't that bad before. I didn't need all of your grace. I need just enough grace to get me out of the trap. Just enough grace to cover this little thing, I got the rest. Or just enough grace to cover this big thing, I've got the rest. However, as Paul says in his second letter to the church in Corinth, But he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Its strength looks like humility. It looks in the fact that I can confess all of my weakness because I know the Lord will forgive everything, and he has the only one that can forgive. I can't save myself. I can't forgive myself. Only God can do that. So Paul says, here's everything. Here's all my weakness. Here's all my brokenness. And I do that gladly because the Lord is the one who can save. The Lord is the one who gives grace. And that grace is sufficient. That's the strength of honesty. Or perhaps if you allow me some liberty to say, therefore, I will boast all the more gladly in my weaknesses so that the strength of Christ may rest upon me. Strength looks like full confession of our weakness in order that the strength of Christ may be known in our lives. Paul says we should gladly confess where we are weak. Oh, that's really hard to do. Because if we do that, that means I don't have everything together. If we do that, that means... I'm broken. That means I'm weak. Right? Yes. Exactly. Our strength then is not found in ourselves. Our strength is not in our ability to give in to temptation or the lack thereof. Our strength is not in our ability to stand up against the evils of the world. Our strength is not in our ability to somehow to be a beacon of of light and truth and all of these things in the world out there. Rather, our strength is not our own. We are not our own. We've been bought at a price, the precious blood of Jesus Christ. Body and soul have been purchased. Strength looks like being honest about ourselves and about who Jesus is. The one who removes us from the trapper's snare. Strength is relying on what Jesus has accomplished. The second thing that strength looks like is a hope. Strength looks like hope. We know around the world that hope in the Christians, Christian circle, we talk, I should say, we talk about hope all the time in our circles, don't we? We certainly have a secure hope in Christ. There's there's no doubt about that. We have a secure hope that there is nothing that can separate us from the love of God. That's absolutely right. We have a secure hope that Jesus will come again and restore all things, that he will wipe away every tear from our eye, and there will be no more mourning, there will be no more crying. But amazingly, hope is bigger than that. Hope is is even bigger than those things. In verses 13 to 17 of Psalm 73, we see what we're talking about. It gives us another kind of hope wherein we can recognize God's strength when temptation comes. Asaph is looking around his world, seeing the wicked increase in wealth and power and influence. He looks around his world and he's angry. He's frustrated. He's tired. He's sick of it all. 
Sounds familiar to us. He looks around the world. He sees the wicked getting richer and richer. He he sees things that are just not going the right. And he actually says, my heart is clean. His hands are washed in innocence. I'm good. They're bad. I'm really good. He was angry. Even to the point of betraying those whom he loves. Because of their wickedness. How often we have the same emotions, the same viewpoint of our world. How often we have the same frustrations, the same fear, the same anger, the same worry about the world that we live in. It's all going off the rails and going off the rails quickly. So thought Asaph so many years ago. So we think today. What do we do with that then? Asaph thought that of his world thousands of years ago. We think that about our world right now. What do we do with that? Asaph is weary thinking about this in verse 16, and so are we. When he says he's, he's weary about thinking, how do I accomplish this? What, what do I do? It's a wearisome task for him. Oh, what, what, what do I do? How, do? how do I make it through life? Now go to verse 17 with me of Psalm 73. Asaph says something really quite unbelievable. This was his thought. The world out there is terrible and awful, miserable, an awful place to be. I'm innocent. I'm good. I'm clean. Everything's good with me. In verse 17, he says what? Until. Until I enter the sanctuary of the Lord. He says, there I discerned their end. Verse 18. Truly, you set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. When we're tempted to judge, when we're tempted to determine that we are the ones that must do something, we lean into the strength of the Lord as the holy and righteous judge, as the one who takes care of the wicked. He is the one that will handle that. That's not Asaph's responsibility. His weariness leaves and he says, this is what the Lord does. This is who the Lord is. He takes care of these things. And so our hope is... The hope that we have is the strength of the Lord that He is the rightful judge. He is the one that will take care of the things that are wicked and evil and miserable and awful. And so our responsibility, our hope then is in His strength, in His righteousness, in His justice, in His mercy to them and to me. Our hope is in a sovereign, righteous God. Not in my responsibility to change the world. The Lord may choose to use us to help His path, but ultimately it comes to Him. For this is who God is. He is the one who will cause the wicked to fall. He is the one who destroys them in a moment or like a phantom, Asaph says, a whisper, a ghost. Our strength lies in the hope that the Lord is a God of justice. Our strength lies in the hope in a God of righteousness. When temptation comes, we turn to the strength of hope in the one who is righteous. And our hope is secure that he is that kind of God. And then lastly, strength looks like humility. It looks like hope. It also looks like humility. So if you're circling things on a page and coloring pheasants, okay, your last word is now circled. 
Asaph concludes this wonderful psalm with humility. For it is indeed in humility where temptation loses its power. It's in humility where temptation loses its power and where the Lord reigns. Asaph confesses before the Lord in verse 22 that he was a brute beast before the Lord. A brute beast in his innocence, in his righteousness, and in his ignorance. But he says, nevertheless, the Lord holds his hand. Nevertheless, the Lord counsels him with his presence. And nevertheless, the Lord receives him in his glory. In his humility, he sees that his heart and flesh have failed. In his humility, he confesses that he is not strong and not innocent. But it's the innocence of the Lord and the strength of the Lord that wins the day. So we can say here this morning, it's not a matter if temptation comes. It's a matter of when temptation comes. When temptation comes, we must have some sense of what to do. So what do we do? We turn from the trap and we turn to the Lord and His strength. We turn to honesty about the temptation. We turn in hope that the Lord is a righteous, sovereign God who will destroy our enemies. And then we turn to the Lord in humility, understanding that my flesh and my heart have failed, and they will fail. So it's not our strength that wins the day. It's not even in our strength that we have the ability to turn away from temptation. It's in the Lord's strength where we turn. Because it's ultimately His flesh, right? It's ultimately Jesus' flesh that was entangled in the snare, caught in the fowler's net. And the trapper finished the job on that Friday afternoon. Our Lord Jesus was crucified. He died and He was buried. The trapper had snared him. Jesus was the one whose flesh was crucified, and his flesh that was humbled. Philippians 2, verse 8 says this And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even a death on a cross. This is what strength looks like. This is what strength looks like when temptation comes. To look to a Savior who defeated the snare, who defeated death and defeated the enemy. He is the one that defeated temptation and he defeated it on the cross. So what do we do when temptation comes? When we're snared, when we're in the fowler's net, we enter into the sanctuary of the Lord. We enter into the presence of the Lord and we rely on His strength and we look to a Savior that conquered sin and death as He rose again from the third day 
and the tomb sits empty to this day. And he sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty where he comes to judge the living and the dead. And he promises to come back. That's strength. Strength is found in weakness. Strength is found in the presence in the sanctuary of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Amen. Our Lord and our God, we are in your sanctuary. Show us your strength. Show us your mercy. Show us your grace and your love to us now. That we would know your power, your strength, and your mercy. And so, Lord, when temptation comes, may you be our bulwark. May you be our strong tower, our rock, our defender, our shield. Go before us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.